Man, what a privilege it is to hear the infallible and inerrant Word of God read to us. Um, I'm really excited to get into chapter 5 of Hosea. I think there's a lot in here uh, that's very applicable uh, all this time later, almost 3,000 years later. One thing that I think we, we need to start out with is one of the ways in which I think the Christian message primarily suffers today. The Christian message primarily suffers today uh, in a lot of our efforts to actually make it more expansive and make it more inclusive. What I'm talking about here is uh, the problem of making the message more tolerable to people who are sinners. Because the message of Christianity is one that calls people to repentance. It confronts them with their sin and calls them to repent, turn away from their sin, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the ways in which we try to make this palatable to a Western audience in the 20th and the 21st century is we try to dull down the sin part, up the grace part, and in doing so, we actually really distort and we really lose the heart of what the Christian message is. We actually take all the thunder out of the message. Jesus, all of the time in his earthly ministry, will call people to such a repentance. And one such instance is in Luke. If you will turn with me to Luke chapter 7, we're going to take a look at one such account. Luke chapter 7, and we'll be in verse 36. And I just want to show you through this story, by fr- I want to frame this for you, the problem with taking the sin, taking the guilt, taking the the repentance out of the Christian message is we actually rob people of all the joy and all the glory that is to be experienced in Christ. So I'm not going to read all of this. It's a lot of verses, but I am going to read some of them and we'll skip around a little bit. So we're going to be in verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table, in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flax of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed him with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus, answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Now Jesus will then go on to unpack this parable, and the parable sums up in this way. There's two people, both of them who owe a debt. One person owes a small debt, really an insignificant debt, one that they could have eventually maybe paid back, and they are forgiven of this debt. And there is a second person who owes an insurmountably large debt, and they are forgiven as well by the same person. And Jesus turns to this Pharisee and he says to him, which one of these two people who is forgiven do you think is more thankful, is more grateful for the forgiveness of the debt? And the Pharisee rightly says that it is the one who is forgiven the greater debt, who is more thankful. And so what Jesus is acknowledging here is that the woman who is at his feet is so thankful and is so rejoicing in God and who he is because of the insurmountable debt that she was convinced that she owed to the Lord and what she was forgiven of. Whereas the Pharisee, who was not convinced that he had much of a debt owed to God, was not very thankful to Jesus. In fact, he treated Jesus just like any other host, any other guest. 
And it is because the Pharisee did not rightly see himself that he was unable to rightly see who Jesus was. And it was because the woman rightly saw who she was that she was able to see who Jesus was. And so one of the ways in which the Christian message suffers is we rip people's ability away to see themselves in their sin, in their full, wretched display of depravity. And instead, we puff them up and say things like, you are good enough, you are strong enough, in fact, you're not that bad, and Jesus really just came to make your life a whole lot better. But the reality is that people were destined for destruction before Christ. And when people rightly see that, they are able to rightly repent, to rightly turn to God, and rightly see him and glorify him for the work that he has done. So why, if our own conversion experiences, the greatest joy that we had was seeing our sin and falling before Christ and worshiping him, why do we rob other people of that same joy and that same glory when we try to doll up the message to make it more acceptable to a wider audience? In the name of tolerance, in the name of spreading the message wide, whatever we convert people to who we don't confront with their sin and we don't call to repentance, whatever we're converting them to, it's not Christianity. We might call it that, but it has lost all of the essential and core tenets of what we are calling them to believe in. And Hosea is no different in the Old Testament. In fact, in verse 1 and through the whole part of chapter 5, he goes right for the heart of the sin that separates the people of Israel from God. He goes not for the easy sins to talk about, not for the ones that everyone generally disagrees are sinful, or generally agrees are sinful. He goes right for the sins that would, be, would have been the most controversial things for him to have talked about. When he says these sins by name, he is calling out whole groups of the Israelite society. And he is aware of this. And he knows that if this domino falls, if they rightly see their sin, rightly see how the Lord views it, and they repent and they turn, that this is the very thing that is going to cause them to fall before Yahweh and be rightly reconciled with him. You see, in a very real sense, if you are a good doctor and someone comes into your office with cancer and they also maybe have a few other ailments, right? And you neglect to treat them of the main thing, which would be cancer, but you fix all the other ailments and you kind of doll up the easier stuff and you send them on their way, you've really not done your core job. You've really not healed them in any significant or substantial way. And so as Christians, we should be wary. We should talk about sin, yes, but we should talk specifically about the sins that we know most pull people and draw people away from the Lord. That we know if that domino falls, that that would be the one thing that causes them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's difficult because those are usually the sins that people hold the most tightly. The sins where if you call that sin out, this is the very thing that's going to cause you to lose that friendship. And so we should be careful. But Hosea goes right for it. He's not ashamed of what the message that he has to bring to the people. And so some of the sins that we've talked about beforehand in the previous oracles are sins like idol worship, sins like cult prostitution and sleeping with cult prostitutes in order to worship Baal. We've talked about the sin of being faithless to God while he is remaining faithful to the people. And we've talked about the sin specifically of forgetting God or uh, the lack of knowledge of God that is present in the land. We looked at that one uh, really in depth last week. And in this chapter, we're going to look at three additional sins as well. These are the sins that he's going to turn, and this is the one that they need to hear right now. And there's three sins. Uh, the first one is syncretism, uh, which, again, which is worshiping a false god with the one true god. 
So that word syncretism just means you're worshiping a false deity at the same time that you try to worship the one true God. You're mixing worship of deities. The second sin that we're going to look at is the sin of pride or the sin of uh, the thought that a legalistic works-based righteousness is right before God. And then the third sin we're going to look at is the sin of greed. And really how this manifests is in the form of desiring control over your circumstances and thinking that God can't save you, so you need to save yourself. And this is how greed manifests because we we don't think that God's going to take care of us. So while we have the opportunity, we amass as many things as we can, thinking that our savings account and our big houses and our nice cars are going to protect us from the dangers that are out there in the world, knowing that only Yahweh can do those kinds of things. And we're going to look at how these three sins primarily put the people in the face of judgment that they, that they have coming their way. So we're going to start this off in verse 1, uh, where he has three calls to listen. He says, Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. And give, hear, give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. He has three things that he has to say. He says, Hear, listen, pay attention. And the very next thing he says after he's captured their attention is this judgment that I'm about to say is for you. And notice who he calls out. He calls out the house of Israel, the house of the king, and the priests. So he's now identified all three facets of their society. The people, the leadership on the government side, and the leadership on the religious side. And all three facets have now been called to judgment. He says the judgment is for you. And then he says a follow-up statement, which is, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And this is hunting language which depicts these different groups uh, being hunters and their prey is really the nation of Israel. So they spread their net upon Tabor, which would have been one of the cities in Israel, and they've been a snare at Mizpah, meaning they've trapped and they've somehow captured the nation or specifically the people. And they've done so in a way where the people are now deceived and they are kind of stuck in the sin that these people are leading them in. And Hosea takes the charge that he has as a prophet really seriously. In fact, uh, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel is called to be a watchman. And in Ezekiel chapter 3, the specific charge that God gives him is to call people to repentance or else their blood will be on his hand. And these are the words that he says to Ezekiel in chapter 3 verse 17. He's a son of man. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood will be required at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall still die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. This is the charge of the watchman of Ezekiel's time, and this is the same charge that Hosea gets from the Lord, which is that he has a message to deliver, which is to call these people to repentance. And regardless of whether these people repent and turn from their sin or not, the charge still sits on Hosea. And the call that Jesus gives us in the New Testament as saints and as the royal priesthood in which all of us partake in is to call people to that same kind of repentance, which is that each and every one of us can think of people in our lives who are walking in wickedness and things that the Lord has said that those things are sin and they are in rebellion to God. 
And our job is not to convert them. Our job is to warn them. And we trust God with the growth. We trust God with all of those other parts. But that does not discharge us of the duty of preaching the word to them and calling them to the gospel. And so as Ezekiel holds this high watchman role, Hosea holds this high watchman role, and even us in the New Testament and after the age of Christ hold this high watchman role. And so the specific sin that they are being ensnared in uh, is more clearly articulated in verse 2. It says, And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. So we know that whatever sin he's just talked about, the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, that this is going to lead to the discipline of all of them or all of the people that he has just previously mentioned, which remember was the house of Israel, the priesthood, and the kings or the government. And to more clearly understand what that sin is, gone deep into slaughter, you have to cross-reference it to other parts of Scripture that use that same Hebrew word and what is being described in those specific passages. This word is used a handful of times in the Old Testament. One such time is in Psalm 106. So if you will turn with me to Psalm 106, it's a long psalm. Psalm 106, we're going to be in verse 34 of that psalm. Remember, we're trying to understand what that word slaughter means. So in verse 34 of Psalm 106, remember, this is syncretism. This is worship, mixing worship of God with worship of false gods. And it says in verse 34, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. And they served their idols which became a snare to them. Now, so this is the people of Israel mixing worship of Yahweh with the idols of the local peoples. So they didn't follow God's command when they entered the promised land, and instead they adopt all of the religious practices of these local Canaanites. And the religious practice that's specifically outlined as sacrifice is found in verse 37 of this chapter. It says, They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, and they poured out innocent blood the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus, they became unclean by their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds. The specific syncretism that Israel is guilty of in this chapter is not the syncretism of cult prostitution worship of Baal. It is the sin of child sacrifice to Baal. For the same purpose, as the cult prostitution. Remember, Baal is the god of prosperity and affluence. So you trade in the cult prostitution practice to paint a picture of fertilization of the land and a better harvest and a better yield for your crops. And in the same way, the child sacrifice was practiced to get the same benefit, the same reward, which would have been economic stability, future prosperity. And they thought that if somehow they sacrificed their children to these gods, as Psalm 106 says, to the demons, being the false gods, that this would somehow bring them prosperity. And they do this thinking that it has no conflict with their ability to then turn also and worship Yahweh as well. And lest you think that that is a practice that was stuck in a barbaric age in the past, unfortunately, this is the very same sin that our own nation primarily is guilty of today, which would be the sin of aborting children for economic advantage, personal autonomy, in the name of some stability that we can control the outcome of the future. And although we don't worship false gods through child sacrifice, 
in the sense that we don't worship Baal. We do worship the God of secularism and the God of self through the act of sacrificing children, our children, our future generation, in the same way. And in the Old Testament, it's very easy for us to look at practices such as stoning for the sin of adultery and think of how barbaric that is. But it's a lot harder for us to wrap our heads around the fact that the darkest sin that even they condemned in the Old Testament, we can somehow be okay with and actually argue for in the 21st century. It's difficult to wrap your head around that if you really think about it. The sin of slaughter is the primary sin that the people are guilty of. And remember, the sin that he outlined, he first addressed to the government, to the priesthood, and to the people of Israel, which means the government is complicit in allowing the sin to take place. The government ordained by God to keep peace and order is complicit in allowing this to happen. The priesthood is complicit in the sense that they don't, they don't condemn people who practice these kinds of things. They still allow these people to enter into the temple and worship. And the people are guilty in the sense that they have been ensnared by this. And they go ahead and they participate in these acts of worship because the government is not punishing them and the priesthood is not calling them out. And so in their threefold complicence in this, the whole nation is condemned and judged by God for their sin. And in verse 3, we find out that they thought they were getting away with it, but they were in fact not. He says, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore and Israel is defiled. They thought they were hiding from God, but in fact, they were not. And although they do not know him, he knows exactly what their heart is. And it continues in verse 4. It says, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For their spirit of whoredom, which is within them, for they have a spirit of whoredom within them, and they know not the Lord. You see, in verse 4, there's this very difficult line which says that their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, which is difficult in the sense that it sounds like somehow the sin that was just mentioned is disqualifying for forgiveness from Yahweh. And that's not actually what is being said because what is being said here is that their deeds do not permit them to return to their Lord, and you need to keep reading for the word for. The reason why this deed is disqualifying is because it paints a picture of an internal reality of the heart that is already far away from God. The action itself has not disqualified them. The action itself paints a picture of a heart that is already far away from God and already led astray. In verse 4 at the tail end, it says, For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. It is their internal desire disposition that has led them away from an ability to turn from their sin. And the deed simply paints the picture of the internal reality. There is no sin that is disqualifying anyone from salvation. In fact, people who have abortions and people who perform abortions are still able to be saved by God. It requires, however, repentance, confession, and a turning away from that and a falling before the Lord for his mercy. It's not as though we can excuse it and say that it is not a sin but it is also not as though it is a sin that disqualifies people from salvation. And so we should keep that in balance in our minds. But the message is clear through these first four verses that you cannot practice syncretism. And in the modern sense, what that means is you cannot both do this, support this, and partake in this in any way, 
and then also turn and worship Yahweh because to do so would be to practice syncretism. To do so would be worship both the God of self and the God of scripture. And you cannot do both. They are exclusive in the sense that God demands wholesale worship. Wholesale worship of him. And he demands every single part of our lives. So then this continues for us then in verse 5. So we've looked at the, the false sin of syncretism. And not only was Israel led astray by this spirit of sin that blinds their worship of Yahweh, but they also, in their own worship of God, when they turn to the temple, they are practicing sin, uh, which is kind of an outflow of the sin we just looked at. So in verse 5 it says, The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah shall also stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. The pride of Israel is the second primary sin that's identified in this passage, and it manifests itself primarily, you can see it in verse 6. The pride of Israel is this, is that they go to worship Yahweh, but they go to worship Yahweh not in spirit and in truth, not from a heart disposition, but they go to worship Yahweh with their flocks and their herds, which means that their heart is far from God, but instead that their actions are completely in line with the legal code. And in the Levitical code, we know that if you had sinned, you had to offer a sacrifice to atone for the sin on your behalf. So what the people are doing is they're exploiting this system, which means that the rich, who had large flocks and large herds, could continue in their sin practice, knowing that they could then just offer bulls and goats to sacrifice on their behalf to atone for their sin. This is a legalistic variation of worship because what they think in their head is that when someone sees me going into the temple and when God sees me coming into the temple with all these bulls and all these goats to sacrifice, I'm doing all the things. I'm checking all the boxes. But we know even in the Old Testament that people were not convinced that it was exclusively an outward action that saved them from their sin. It is not as though someone's heart didn't have to change as well because David says in Psalm 51, Verses 16 and 17, when he is repenting of his own sin with Bathsheba, he says to God, for, I would, for you, will not, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. And you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, even in the Old Testament, there were saints who were convinced of the fact that it was not their outward actions that somehow made them right with the Lord, but first an inward disposition had to be real. An inward repentance, an inward turning away from sin, hating sin, and falling before the Lord for his mercy. And the sacrifice was really just a way to paint the picture of that internal reality. You see, what was supposed to happen is they were supposed to take these bulls and sacrifice them at the temple. And seeing the bull bleeding out on the altar was supposed to paint a picture to their internal reality that that is what I am deserving of. And this should have broken them in such a way that they saw the reality and they turned from their sin. But instead, they tried to exploit the system and tried to legalize the system in a way where they could continue in their sin practice and they could continue in their sacrificial offering. Somehow, legalism had then infiltrated the people to where they thought that their outward actions of righteousness saved them from God. But he is again not fooled by them because he continues in verse 7 saying, they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. For they have borne alien children, 
and now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. You see, the people deal faithlessly with God, meaning they deal in a way that is separated from the faith that they once knew with the Lord. And specifically, this leads to the bearing of alien children. In the NIV, it says illegitimate children. That's a really good translation of that word. It means they've borne him children that are outside of the covenant relationship. This was painted for us in a picture, if you'll remember in the first few chapters of Hosea, by Gomer bearing children outside of the marriage relationship with Hosea. And Gomer bears two children after the first who are not children of Hosea. And God now turns to the people of Israel and he says, this generation that you're bearing me in the sin that you're walking in right now, they're actually not under the covenant. They're actually not my children. They are alien children. They are far from me. And so the sin of Israel has not only affected the immediate generation, but it also has affected the generation that is now being raised in this sin practice. And we know that sin has a generational type effect on people. Not that we are punished for the sins of our forefathers, but that the sin can carry on down generations. It can be passed through. Because if you grow up in an environment with sin, that sin is likely to take hold and be considered okay for you as well. And this is why it is important for us when we are growing up and when we are having children, when we are raising them up, that we are careful to teach them in the ways of the Lord. That we are careful to raise them up on Scripture, raise them up on a good diet of faith. Because doing this brings the promises that God has in the new covenant onto our children as well. That we are bearing children under the covenant. As opposed to being born under the covenant ourselves and then leading our children astray as well. In Matthew 7, there's a very scary verse. In verses 22, or 21, 22, and 23 of Matthew 7, there's this picture that Jesus says where he says, that there will be many people who come to me on that last day who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity or you workers of lawlessness. And this is a reality that I think is really scary for the person who grew up in the church today, who can do all of the legalistic practices, who can read their Bible every single morning, who could attend church every Sunday, who can tithe, who can go on missions trips, which are phenomenal things to do. All of those things are great. But they are actions and just those things. They are of no external benefit except that they paint a picture of the internal reality. Works cannot save us before God. Works only paint a picture of the already true internal reality. And there will be many people on the last day who go to Jesus and they say to him, we did all of these things in your name. And he will say that that doesn't matter at all because I never knew you. And I grew up in the church, and so this verse scares me to death because it makes me think about the fact that I know all the right actions to do, and I know all the right things to say, and I know all the right verses to quote. But that doesn't save me in any way. That all of those things Paul says in the New Testament are rubbish when he counts the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You see, he was a perfect Jew, but he said all of that was worth nothing for knowing Christ. And in the same way, we have to say that all of our worship is nothing for the surpassing worth of just knowing who Christ is and trusting in his finished work. That doesn't mean that works are of no significance. Remember, the offerings were important for the Old Testament Jews. The works of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit are important for New Testament Christians. But they in themselves are not salvific in any way. They do not earn us salvation. So the question is then simple. Do we consider ourselves to be 
in a right relationship with God on the basis of our works. Do you consider yourself to be in right relationship with God because you can cite a series of actions or steps that you've taken in your life? If so, I would remind you of the fact that it is Jesus and Christ alone on the cross crucified whose righteousness was imputed to us, which means his righteousness was taken from the perfect son of man and put onto us. And when Christ looks at us, he doesn't look at our works, he doesn't look at our actions, because God would see right through all of those things to the heart that was corrupt before him. And instead, he needs to look at Jesus, who stands in our place, who clothes us in righteousness, who covers us for our sin. And that is the only thing that can save us from the wrath of God. But not only is Israel guilty of syncretism, not only are they guilty of pride, but now Judah gets involved in the mess of sin as well, and they are guilty of greed during a war with Israel. In verse 8, it starts to paint the picture of such a war. It says, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, and sound the alarm in beth We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. In these first verses of chapter, in the first few lines of chapter 8, or sorry, verse 8, this is classical wartime language. It says, blow the horn, sound the trumpet, sound the alarm. This is language of the watchman, which remember we referred to earlier in Ezekiel, which was responsible for warning people of the coming judgment. Now in the same way, the real in-person watchman of, this, of these different cities has to blow the trumpet and sound the alarm because they see something on the horizon, an incoming army that is invading. And specifically, the cities listed go in a path from south to north. In fact, if you were to use one of the maps in the back of your Bible, uh, you could find each of these cities. They're on the southernmost border of Benjamin up into the northernmost border of Benjamin. And they travel in this northward direction, which means the attack that's coming on Israel or Ephraim, as mentioned here, is specifically coming from the south. And you'll remember there's only one kingdom that exists to the south of their border, which is the kingdom of Judah. So what happens in this century, right around 732 BC, is there's this war that happens where Assyria is coming in and pressing in on all of these different kingdoms. And Judah and Israel in this war, as things start shaking out, they end up on opposite sides of one another. They're fighting, for each, they're fighting against one another in the war. The once united family of uh, the once united family of Israel is now uh, separated from one another and they're fighting against each other in this war. And at one point in time, Israel is so occupied with its northern borders fighting the war on that front that Judah decides this is a great time for us to go make a land grab from the south. And specifically, we know this in context because in verse 10 it says, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark which is a specific Old Testament command not to move the borders that God has already established for the nations. Because remember, each of the tribes got a specific inheritance in the promised land, and God had already foreordained these lands. And the reason he says don't move the landmark is because he knows the heart of man, which is that greed will set in, 
And as soon as they have things, they will become discontent and they will try to gain more of those things. And the powerful will oppress the poor and they will buy out their fields and buy people into slavery. And they will just continue to expand their power and feed their greed. So he says, don't do that. But Judah takes an opportune time to do that exact thing when they're at war with Israel. And so, and in doing so, they indict themselves in this same oracle of judgment that Hosea brings to the people. God says to Ephraim that they shall become a desolation. So not only has Judah wiped out the whole tribe of Benjamin from Ephraim, but also God says that in the day of punishment, which means at some future time, Ephraim will become a desolation, that it's not all said and done for them. There is still some coming future judgment. And we know that in 10 years' time, Assyria is going to wipe them completely off the map. In fact, they're going to take all of the Israelites and they're going to pull them off into exile and they're going to make them serve and worship the Assyrians. But God says that in the day of punishment, he will make known what is sure. One of the ways in which God makes his word true is he predicts things that are going to happen way ahead of when they happen. In fact, at this point in time, 10 years before this exile actually happens, he predicts it right there. This is how we know it's God talking and not just some false prophet who's just saying things that are convenient. You can also know it's God talking because he's not saying comfortable things to the people. But he's not only targeting Ephraim. Remember, Judah indicted themselves as well. And what he has to say to Judah is this, Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. And you'll recall that the last time God poured out his wrath like water on the earth was in the time of Noah during the flood where he wiped everything off of the earth. In fact, he killed all but eight people. And so this is not a nice thing, right? This is not, pouring out your wrath like water, that is a harsh indictment because the people would have thought of that exact oracle that happened with Noah. And then he continues in verse 11 saying that Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. You see, God is not just arbitrarily wiping Ephraim off the map. He is doing so not because they went after filth, not because they made a mistake, but because they were determined to go after filth. They had set their heart upon sinful things and they had pursued those things instead of Yahweh. They were determined to go after filth. And then he continues in verse 12 saying, but I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. You see this slow, patient punishment of the people, first taking Ephraim off the map a little bit, inching their borders closer and tighter. Judah eventually feeling the weight of wicked kings over and over generations. These are not to be seen as unlucky events or unfortunate events. They are to be seen as the hand of God, specifically on the people, pushing them to repentance. That the moth to Ephraim and the dry rot to the house of Judah, these paint a picture of a slow wasting away, a slow eroding of the people. And they should not see this as anything other than the hand of God on them, bringing them to judgment for their sin. They failed to trust in God, but they instead trust in what they can see. And so Judah is guilty of greed for trying to control their borders. And God reminds them that although they thought they were in control, that he in fact is control and he controls everything. And he is the moth. He is the dry rot. He is the incoming Assyrian army that's about to wipe them off the map. That Assyria is nothing more than a tool in the hand of God to bring about his judgment on the people. It is Yahweh, not Assyria, who is crushing the Israelites and wiping out Judah. 
And then God's judgment is on them not only because they refuse to acknowledge him as God exclusively, right? They worship Baal and Yahweh together. Not only because they rely on themselves instead of him in their own works and their own actions. And not only because they worship and rely on other nations, but because they seek literally anything other than God for salvation. And we see this in verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, being the king of Assyria. But he is not able to cure you or to heal your wound. You see, Ephraim and Judah both recognize that something's wrong. There is some oppressive force on them, and they recognize that there is something that has to change. So what do they do? Well, they just run to what they think can fix it. They treat the symptom of the judgment by running to Ephraim, or Ephraim running to Assyria. Ephraim was about to be wiped off the map by Assyria, and so they seek mercy and throw themselves before the Assyrians and actually sell themselves into slavery for them. And Judah does the exact same thing, paying tribute to Assyria for a long period of time until Babylon eventually overthrows them and then takes Judah as well. So both of them seeking refuge in Assyria in what they could physically see as a superpower on the land. In doing so, they failed to trust God, who is ultimately the source of their security. You see, the wound and the sickness were supposed to drive the people to God. When they recognized their sin problem, what they were supposed to do was to fall before Yahweh and beg for forgiveness, beg for repentance, beg for mercy, because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. However, they run to someone who is not able to cure them. And it's worth noting that their false gods and their false Baal worship wasn't able to cure them either, and their religious practice of sacrifice wasn't able to cure them either. In fact, nothing can cure them except for a true repentance to Yahweh. They try everything but God himself. And so lest they be confused any longer, he says in verse 14, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. And then he's going to explain what he means by that. So if you think about a ferocious lion, read the next verse. It says, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. This is clearly God ripping the nations to shreds and leaving them like that. And it is not to be confused with anything else. Now he's not using Assyria as his middleman. He's saying, I, even I, will tear and go away. He is not trying to confuse them in any way. He's saying, if you didn't get it the first time, if you didn't get it the second time, if you didn't get the encroaching judgment that was coming, I'll make it clear what's going to happen. So now there's no denying that Yahweh is involved. And he has now become completely ruthless with them, ripping them to shreds, carrying them off. And the, the line at the end of that verse, it says, and no one shall rescue. The reason no one can rescue them is because this is the judgment of God. Nothing can stand in the way of his judgment. There is no earthly force. There is no amount of actions. There is no amount of strength that can resist the omnipotent one of heaven and earth for all eternity. But even in their destruction, even in their judgment, it has one purpose, which is redemption. He says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress, earnestly seek me. He does all of these things, all of these actions, all of the judgments that we've just read about. He does them for one 
reason, which is to bring about repentance for the Israelites. In Isaiah 55, 6, the prophet says it this way, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You see what that implies is that there is a certain point in time in which the Lord will no longer be able to be found, that there is a time in which he will no longer be near. And we know that that time is not yet. That eventually, in the day of judgment, every single person will be separated. And there will be no more time to repent of sin. There will be no more time to trust in God. That that decision on that judgment day will be a final decision for all of eternity. But that day has not yet happened. And so while God is patient with us, he is not patient forever. Because the patience will eventually run out and judgment will eventually come. So we seek the Lord while he may be found, and we call upon him while he is near. And remember, all of the sins of Israel are not disqualifying them at this moment in time. They're just putting them in a really bad spot. But they're not disqualifying, because in the New Testament, Paul even admits that there's really no sin that's disqualifying. He says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, after listing off a litany of sins, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The only thing that separates people in heaven and those in hell on the last day is not the amount of sin that they did. It is the amount of forgiveness that they received at the hands of God. You see, there are great sinners who will one day be in heaven. And there are very righteous people who will one day be in hell. And righteousness and sin is not the separating factor between those two groups. Because Jesus looks at all of our earthly works and he says, all of this is rubbish. All of this is garbage. All of this is worth nothing. Unless we are washed and we are taking on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Just like Israel today, we are sinners who have been warned of our sin. We have a wound that we cannot heal in and of ourselves. In fact, nothing we seek on this earth to remedy that wound, remedy that emptiness, is going to be sufficient to heal it. As he says in this, uh, in verse 13, he says, but he is not able to cure you. Whatever that thing is that you're seeking that's not God is unable completely and completely powerless to cure you of your wound. We cannot heal it by our own effects, by our own actions, by our own desires. It is clear from Hosea chapter 5 that God is sovereign, which means he is judge to whom Israel will one day be accountable. He is the judge to which Judah will one day be accountable. And he is the judge to which one day you and I will also be accountable. God is the judge. And as he says in verse 14, no one shall escape. Which means this and this alone, that one day on the final judgment day, God is going to look directly at you and he's going to evaluate every single thing you did in this life. And if there's even one thing that falls in the category of sin, that will disqualify you from forever, from eternity with God. If there's only one thing that's a sin. Because God has a perfect heaven, and he can't let you in to ruin it. You see, if God made heaven and let everyone on earth into heaven, we would make that heaven a hell just like this earth. Because we, by nature, are sinners. We, by nature, are led astray in our spirit. We, by nature, are alien children, born outside of relationship with God, born under Adam, outside of God. But God, being rich in love, sends Jesus Christ, his son, down to this earth 
to forgive us of sin. And he forgives us of sin in a specific way, which is that he lives that life that when one day it's measured on the scale, there are no sins that fall in the sin category. That in fact, everything Jesus did for his whole life was perfectly righteous. You see, Jesus, if all he had to do was die, could have come down at 33, died on the cross, and had the whole thing done in three days. But instead, as we wait in this Christmas season, he comes as a baby. And the reason he does this is so he can fulfill the whole law. You see, we try to fulfill the whole law, but, the, but as James says, if we stumble at one point, we are guilty of all of it. But Jesus comes and he fulfills the whole law and he doesn't stumble at any point in time. And he lives a perfect life up until the age of 30 and then he begins his earthly ministry at the age of 30. And then for three years, he teaches on the kingdom. And there's no person who teaches more on hell than Jesus. In fact, and you look to the Old Testament, it's very unclear what hell is like. If you look at the New Testament and the epistles, it's very unclear what hell is like. But there is one prophet who God sends to talk about hell, and it's his only son. There's no one else he trusts us to teach about it. And Jesus comes and he teaches us about hell because he knows that if we're not aware of the reality, that we will never return and repent and believe. But not only does he teach on hell, he also makes a way that we will never have to enter hell because he dies the death that we deserve and he lives the life that we could never live. And we put our faith in him and we who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we declare Jesus is Lord and we believe it in our heart. He is faithful and just to trust Jesus' righteousness for us and put our unworthiness on Jesus. And so when he crucifies Jesus, then Jesus gets his wrath, the wrath of God poured out on him. Or in the language of this passage, the wrath of God is poured out like water on Jesus. But that's to spare Judah. That's to spare you and I from that same punishment. But remember, you can't get there unless you repent, unless you turn from sin and you believe. And so just like Hosea, I'm going to ask the same type of question. What is the sin that is the stronghold for you? What is the thing that if that domino fell, everything with God would be okay? That if you finally gave up on your self-reliance or your legalism, you'd be in right relationship with God and you repented of that. If you gave up on your control and your greed and you repented and you believed on Christ, he would be forgiving of you. And if you finally repent, and as a nation I think that we need to, of the sin of abortion, and if we finally turn from that sin and had confessed it for what it really is, and we turn to Christ for his forgiveness, he would be faithful and just to forgive all of the people who practice that. And if that sin, you can identify a sin that's a stronghold. It's simple. Repent and believe. It doesn't, it's not go out and do better, try harder, do more good things, be a better Christian, tithe more. It's simple. Repent and believe on the Lord. Not in some superficial way, but repent in a real, authentic way in which you actually turn away from sin and you see the sin for what it is and you see God for who he is and you run towards him away from sin, dying to sin, living to Christ every single day. And if you throw yourself before the mercy of God, unlike the king of Assyria, he is a good, gracious father who forgives us abundantly and he is merciful to all who would call on his name because he has made a way through his son. And as the scriptures say, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no if conditional statement. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you pray with me?
God, I thank you for your word for us today. Lord, I pray that this would not be something that we see as outside of ourselves, Lord. For those of us who have already trusted in you, that we would see this as the very truth that we cling to for our salvation. And we would be reminded of the sin that had to fall in order for us to rightly see you and rightly see ourselves. And Lord, I pray that we would never forget that gospel that we cling to for our sanctification, for our righteousness, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are sinners and he is a savior. And Lord, I pray that if there's any among us who has never trusted in you, never put their faith finally in you, that you would not allow that person to find rest until they find their rest in you. That although they would try to alleviate sin in every way, that you would be an oppressive force, a dry rot, a lion that vengefully crushes them in order to bring about repentance. And Lord, that when they finally rest in you, when they finally find their rest in the one who brings rest, that they would rejoice in the truth that that is. And Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. And I pray that you would aid us by your spirit to continue in worship this evening. In your name, amen.